Welcome to the final episode in the five-part Harold Dunn series featuring author Marilyn Walton. In episode four, we learned all about what it was like to be in the POW camp immediately after the great escape took place. We also heard more about the commandant of the camp, the treatment of the POWs in the camp after the great escape, as well as how the prisoners survived physically within the camp. In this final episode, Mr. Dunn will detail the evacuation of Stalag Lift 3 as the Russians approached from the east. We also hear about their hardship marching in the bitter cold to Stalag 7A at Mooseburg and their eventual liberation. In this series for the first time, we recorded using an online service to be able to include a remote guest. As a result, you may hear some varying internet voice quality and minor background static issues. We hope you won't find them distracting and will instead enjoy the content. Thank you very much. All right, well, we'll, we'll move on here. Um, now we're going to get to the point where they abandon Stalag Lift 3, and he starts yeah. talking about the march. Well, what was it like moving from Stalag 3... Stalag 3 to Stalag 7A, how far did you have to march, do you know? What were the conditions like for that? It was pretty miserable. It's, it was really cold. <clears throat> and we marched, and, uh, and, and another thing, the first night, we, I, went, I went in a barn, we had different buildings, together, you know, and I was in the same barn with this man. Uh, that uh, are they're right here. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in. Uh, you were showing a picture. Some guy of that stepped night. on somebody in the middle of the night and he caused a big, big group barb. And I think you're right. Was one that got stepped on. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. It was, and he tells about uh, the German, you know, population moving there. And there's one wagon come by the <clears throat> woman driving the cart, whatever it was. And, Baby crying, it didn't sound too good. It's pretty mean it's about zero weather and all that. So the German population was having troubles too. Yeah, that that's one of the things that I think people tend to forget. And, and you know, Tony and I actually just uh, interviewed um, a, um, a lady that was a Hitler Youth survivor. She was in the Hitler Youth, but the, they her family was, you know, basically displaced and they had to survive the war. And the what they had to go through, what the civilian population had to endure, um, I mean, they, they, any direction that they went, you know, they were, they ran into problems. So. And, and yet, you write in your book that there was exchange of food between, sometimes the POWs would give the refugees food and sometimes the converse happened. So. To me, this march is probably, I, you tell me, you're the subject matter expert here, it feels like the most arduous, the most controversial thing that the Germans imposed upon American POWs. Yeah, no question. I mean, after the war, there were a lot, of, you know, talked about war crimes trials. They were not allowed to be marched as far as they were in that distance, um, the Geneva Conventions um, regulated all that. They had strict guidelines on that, and the Germans violated those. Um, so how, how far were they marched? And I didn't know the Geneva Convention had limits on how far you could march a POW. Oh, yeah. Could you talk oh, about both those things? Yeah, they absolutely. They have regulations for everything, and 
Uh, for the most part, I think the Germans uh, did go by him. The Japanese did not at all. And the Russians never signed the agreement. So their prisoners were treated horribly. Um, they went about 52 miles to Spremberg to get on the trains. And uh, to get back to the actual march, you see a big variance of what people said, how cold it was. Uh, General Clark told me it was about 16 degrees Fahrenheit, but there was a horrible wind and there were maybe six inches of snow on the ground. And when that blew, because a lot of people say there were blizzards, I mean, they couldn't see where they were going a lot of the, a lot of the time. Uh, one of the ironies of the march, again, is that if you were a German guard and the prisoners liked you, these men were out of shape. They were 50 years old, some of them, and our prisoners were 20. And although they weren't well fed, they were in better shape to march than the German guards were. And so when the German guards said, like, in <laughs> German guards had to go out to the side of the road where the snow was deeper to guard the prisoners as they marched. So it was even harder for them because they were in deeper snow. So they throw down their packs and their rifles and they refuse. And the, the American prisoners of war and the British knew that they really didn't, they could be shot for that. So they would pick up their rifles and packs and carry it for them. And they, what, what that's a strange, thing. Oh, it was. A psychology. Yeah, my, this, you know? yeah, my dad said at the end of the war, he said at that point, it didn't matter. We were all in the same boat. Yeah, that's pretty and sure. So that's they sure. saved a lot of German guards that way. And there's a, a funny, this is one of the funnier stories I was going to do. It's not funny, it's ironic, and it didn't come out for a long time. A lot, of, a lot of them were Canadian, but there were some Americans there, too. And there would be stopping points along the march route. And one of them was in a place called Grosselton. And it was a farm. And they had a big trough there, very granite kind of ornate, just for the horses to drink out of and the animals. But all of a sudden, the refugees were in the camp. And the uh, POWs stopped at the camp because there were big barns there they stayed in. And then a group showed up. It was the Waffen SS their unit, and they had been in the Hermann Goring division, and they were retreating from the Russians. So you've got this all this mix of people there. And at first, the Germans and the POWs were very leery of each other, and it was very cold, and they, they tell the story about the ice in the trough frozen over, but it was still regulated. You had to be clean-shaven, the POWs and the Germans. Oh. So they're out there breaking the ice, and they've got oh these dull razors. Jeez. But there's both very macho and trying to prove to the other ones that they're going to be a lot tougher about this, you know. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> and then they're getting cut and they're whatever, but they, they would, there was no problem, you know. They had to show up the other side. Well, pretty, and then pretty soon they started trading with the Germans because they, the Americans had a lot of cigarettes. The Germans had hardtack and beef, uh, like a beef jerky probably. And um, so they would trade with each other. And then they kind of got to be a little bit friendly. And then some of the Germans went in the barn and they found part of the, the runners of a sled in ice. And so the Americans helped them and they dug the sled out. And for one afternoon, it was sunny that day. They all went sledding together. Oh. And they <laughs> oh my gosh, this is like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. I mean, and the story's in this big book. Um, and so they were laughing. They were young boys again for two days. All the trauma both sides had been through. They had one afternoon of just being boys playing again. And they get on the same sled together and they go down the hill and they land in a ditch and they pull it back up. And then within two days, uh, that chapter is called Two Days in Dros Grosselton. 
Um, they went their separate ways again. They never saw each other. And the Canadian who wrote the story said, for the longest time when we went home, people wanted to hear our war stories. He said, we did, the war was too raw. We never told that story for a long time because <laughs> really? it just wouldn't go over well that they were sledding with the Waffen SS. Well, there's but, so many stories like like the, the famous Christmas Day story from World War One. Oh, you know, in the truth. Yeah. The absolutely. Truth. There's that. And then there's the story from the Battle of the Bulge, you know, of the, the, the Americans and the Germans, you know, coming to this house and they... Yeah. Everything and and you, that I've never heard that. That is fantastic. Yeah. Well, even Sharf told a story when he was uh, running at one point. Well, he's, he had a lot of funny stories about that. But uh, he he had heard of a story of a man um, who had been an SS officer, and they they had the the lightning bolt tattooed under their arm, and so that's how we got a lot of them because they would look under their arm and find that. And he had one of those, and he was convinced that he was going to he was on the run. And he ran into a Jewish POW who had been in a concentration camp. And he had a little suitcase with clothes. And he got the German out of his uniform, gave him civilian clothes, and the two of them escaped together. I mean, it's mm. more unlikely a pair of people who would help each other at that point, you know, than these two. But that's supposedly that's a true story. Um, the march itself, uh, like I say, it was 52 miles to Spremberg. The train station, they were loaded in 40 and 8 boxcars, which were French small boxcars from World War One, actually. And they meant 40 horses or 8 men. And they, there were about 60 in every boxcar. And it was horrendous. Three days and four nights. And even when they got to Stalag 7A uh, in Mooseburg, which was a horrendous camp, they didn't have a room to put them at first. And they kept them in there, you know all night long and they're banging on the door. They've got sick men in there. They've got, it was just filthy. They had just taken farm animals out before they loaded them in, never cleaned the thing. I mean, you can't imagine how bad it was and somehow they all survived it, but it it was just really horrendous. And then if you were in West compound, uh, you got to Spremberg and your train went to Nuremberg, which to a horrible prisoner of war camp that was too close to the bombs coming down in Nuremberg. It was illegal. I mean, what they were doing, holding them there. And they eventually walked to Mooseburg. Uh, what was that right. camp? Was that 43? That was 13D. 13D, okay. Yeah, it wasn't an Air Force. It wasn't a, a Luftwaffe camp. It was uh, Italian prisoners who had been held there. And it was filthy. There's fleas, bed bugs, um, all kinds of vermin, not enough food, in a, and bombs are coming down every night, exploding around the camp. Nuremberg was a horrible camp. They, well, all of them were, really. But uh, the march itself, um, somehow they survived it. You wonder, when you look back, you wonder how. You'll, you'll read accounts, and, and even some POWs would say, well, you know, German guards were dying, and the canines, they did lose some canines. That they had sentry dogs go, too. Um, but according to the senior Officers from West, Center, and South, they didn't lose one man. Mm, and if you read other accounts yeah. and say otherwise, they'll say, oh, yeah, hundreds of them died. We saw them laying, you know, because they were, sometimes I think the guys just fell where they lied to rest for a while, and their buddies got them up. It could look like a dead body there. So they didn't, it's hard to get an accurate assessment of what went on, even with, from the men that took us. Well, I'm going to move on to um, what life was like um, uh, in Harold's own words in Stalag 7A here. So let me get this one. Which is where they're being marched to, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Most of them. So what, when you ended up at Stalag, 
seven A mm-hmm. at, at Mooseburg. What um, what was that like? How did that camp compare to where you just come from? We didn't have much food of any. If you get food, was really scarce, and <clears throat> you just get a straw tick and lay on the floor. Uh, yeah, it was overcrowded, and and, uh, and food was was really really bad. So it, it, from his manuscript, a little bit more detail here. He said it was a large allied POW camp with prisoners of many nationalities and many branches of service. We were placed in a small compound. The barracks I was placed in would hold about 200 men, very little light, and the windows were small. Each man was given a bowl and a spoon. The floor was earth, and the building was full of fleas. The latrines were open trenches outside. We were lucky our barracks had, a, had double-decker bunks. Some buildings had straw on the floor and a lot more men than we had. Uh, a lot more men than we had. The food was unfit for pigs to eat. It contained wood, worms, bugs, and sand. One batch was from dehydrated sauerkraut and was nearly half sand. When the Red Cross food uh, uh, was given out, German food, wait, well, hold on. When Red Cross food gave out, German food was it, and very little at that. In the middle of March, we received some Red Cross parcels and went on half rations. We made stoves out of tin cans to cook on. We could use almost anything for fuel in them, and they used very little fuel. We had infantry guards here, and they were very inefficient. It took forever to count the prisoners two to three times per day. Is That's that, true. Yeah. That's true. And uh, if you go to YouTube, there's some old, they keep getting new ones all the time, old footage of the war. It's called Critical Past. And they have black and white films. There's no sound. And you'll see the conditions that are there and the men that are there. And at Liberation, you'll see them as well. They're, they're really a discovery. And the more they find these films, they keep putting them on. It's just called Critical Past. But it was a horrible place. I know my father said after liberation, he went behind the cookhouse to see where they, and just outside they stored, maybe it was a shed or something, these dehyde, these old vegetables and things. And he said they were mixed with straw and manure and bugs. And he realized that's what he was eating. And he almost uh, ate Oh, my gosh. Until the Red Cross, it was horrible. Yeah, and they men didn't die from, from that sort of yeah. diet. Yeah. And there, there wasn't a whole lot of medical care uh, if you did get sick. If you got really bad, they could send you to a German hospital somewhere. But a lot of them were really sick with dysentery uh, by that point. And that lasted long after they got home, some of them. Um, they, um, it was overcrowded. They finally put up big white tents that Harold didn't mention. But he might have been in one of those, too, because he was self-compound. Uh, it wasn't, they would try and sleep outside, so they weren't with the bed bugs and the fleas and the lice in the in the barracks. So it was pretty grim. Uh, and I really, I thought they were liberated by Patton on April 29th. And I don't think they would have lasted much longer, although some Red Cross parcels did come in. That was the same wow, grace. They did get some towards the end of the war, so they were doing a little bit better. But they did, it was real smoky in there. It was always wet and damp. Um, and especially when they had these uh, these big white tents and you were really on the ground and the smoke would come up. <laughs> they called them either, uh, they were called um, smokeless cookers or cookless smokers, depending on the day. You know? <laughs> and they'd be cranking this little thing. The smoke was coming all over the place. And it's, the camp actually 
even before liberation, got, and after liberation, got quite dangerous. The Russians, they just got out. Some of them went into town and they were drinking benzene and it killed them. You know, they would drink anything they could find. Uh, the civilians were scared to death to the point the ally, other allies would move in with German families to protect them from the Russians and, and not just the Russians, other nationalities that were coming in. Uh, a lot of theft, a lot of injury, a lot of fighting. It was, it was pretty bad at liberation. Uh, Patton did come into the camp probably the second or third day. Uh, but the one thing they all talk about that were liberated in Newsburg is the raising of the flag there, the American flag, uh, a, a little, uh, little short. He became a pediatrician after the war, and Elaine was his last name, and he had smuggled an American flag. And on liberation, he went up and pulled down the Nazi flag, and he ran up. He just was so thin, he could barely get up there to the top, and he put the American flag up, and the, the whole camp could see it. And this huge cheer went up. And they say the day thousands of men cried because when they saw that, it was so emotional for them to see that American flag up there. They all talked about it. Yeah, so this next clip actually uh, is Harold describing the battle that happened outside of the camp the day that they were liberated in the town of Mooseburg. In the last day there, uh, when they got liberated, there was four, four men in a steeple there when the battle started. Up in, and they had a machine gun up there, and uh, they, I don't know whether they ever opened up on it or not, but one of the tanks swung his gun around and that blew that whole steeple off the building, just totally eliminated it. Well, I, I was walking close to the fence, and the sniper in the tree shot the building by me. The bullet went through both sides of the building and hit a man in the leg on the far side. And uh, maybe two or three minutes later, a P-51 went right over that woods. And I don't, you know, he was, cleared him maybe 50 feet. He fell out of the tree. I don't know whether, I didn't hear the machine gun, you know, didn't hear the plane fire, but he fell out of the tree. I think he scared that guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the things um, that that he mentions, actually, it might be in the next clip, but but he talked about how um, he was watching and uh, he noticed uh, a bridge appearing above the tree line and going back down, and that was when they the Germans blew the bridge, mm-hmm. and um, and they were able to, and that's when they knew that it was really close. I mean, it was at that point that that. It, it, their their liberation was imminent and it was coming. You mm-hmm. know? So, mm-hmm. you were saying something to me. So. With your permission, I'd like to read um, a segment from your book on page 215 about the start of the liberation mm-hmm. because I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so, what you write is um, within the jagged barbed wire enclosures, prisoners were preparing for a church service to be held at 10 o'clock. By 9.45 a.m., many men had gathered on the open plaza and waited for the service to begin. The start of the church service was halted as planes flew over and Kriegis began to hear rifle fire. The battle was on. And you write, and I think this is really fantastic writing. Mm -hmm. At 10 a.m., two American P-51s roared in low, shooting up the camp. Men in one of the guard towers, towers began to shoot the planes. The Allied planes turned and came down with its powerful guns, spitting bullets, and ripped the towers into kindling. Within a minute or two, mortar shells landed in the town and stray bullets whistled into the camp. 
Men drove or dove into slit trenches and foxholes as fighters flew low on strafing runs. German guards advised the men to stay inside and close their shutters. Some men dove under barracks. Butler jumped into a slit trench as fast as he could to escape the flying bullets. What an amazing way. Combined arms operation, right? This is what the Americans could do yeah. at this point, to just go in there and just shock and awe They them. had um, good warning that they were going to be liberated um, because for weeks prior to that, a lot of American planes purposely flew over the camp and they did barrel rolls. And one of them was... Uh, one of the Tuskegee Airmen units, and it was the unit that Tom, that Jefferson was in in the camp, and he saw his planes fly over the camp, and they they they, they hit the railroad station there. So it was really exciting for him, uh, and the German guards knew too, and, and they would say to the Americans, you know, pretty soon we're going to be on the side that you're in, which turned out to be true. Um, <clears throat> uh, so they were just wondering which day it would be. And then when they heard those tanks coming across the field that had, they had looked out one day and there were all the tanks and that noise the tanks makes, you know, it's, it's so distinctive coming across the field. And that was coordinated with the air power too. And there were SS, there were a lot of SS around at that time. And two of them were on the steeple of the church, which he mentioned, St. Castellus, which is an ancient church that sat right outside the wire. And my dad, that was his first stop when he got liberated, he went to church. Um, and the, uh, Cheese factory, which is still there, has a distinctive top to it. There were SS there. And when they got them in the cheese factory, things got quiet. And they kind of warned them, you know, don't go out. Don't think you can go out roaming around because there's still a lot of SS out there. And by that time, the Americans were um, in the camp were taking souvenirs, uh, swords from the German, insignia, guns, uh, everything. And they put the German helmets on and they'd have the full regalia on. And somebody said, wait a minute, the Americans are coming in and now we look like Germans. It's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So that turned out to be kind of a bad idea. But they did take a lot of souvenirs from the Germans. And um, some of the favorite guards, it was sad, General Clark said some of their favorite guards from Stalag Group 3 that came with them were hauled away in a, in a truck. And uh, the drivers of the American truck would purposely slam on the brakes so they would all tumble together. And he said he was just such a, a gentleman and said he really didn't like to see that. He said that was below us to do that. But, you know, feelings were running so high and what the, the driver, the truck had seen in the war and their buddies killed and everything. So, you know, uh, so most of the German camps, the German guards, most of them disappeared the day before liberation because they knew they got out while they could. And there was just a handful of them left. And it was it was quite. Oh, there's an interesting story about liberation. There were two brothers named McCracken, and um, uh, one was a liberator and one was a prisoner of war. Well, then there were two other brothers named McCracken in the camp, and one was a liberator and one was a prisoner of war. And so the father of one came in. It was his father, and I think it was the brother of the other one came in. They were with Patton, and they came in and they liberated their own family members. But you have two oh, McCrackens. Oh I mean, <laughs> I don't even I don't even know a single McCracken, let alone having all the McCrackens there. <laughs> wow. So they they were a big story. Um, there were just uh, other stories that the guys told of what it was like for them. One of the medical officers of all people, the Americans, was the. Um, I think the bullet came through. Uh, he was hunkered down somewhere in a clinic, but it came through and hit his belt buckle, but it did go into his skin, and they they took him out right away to get that, and he, and he was okay. Um, 
But if you the guys, if you were out there, it was dangerous. The bullets were flying everywhere. So most of them did pretty much stay. My dad said he sat with a guy with a cooking pot on his head. This other guy said he turned around. They got laughing because the guy had a pot on his head. <laughs> <laughs> what well, what I think is no. <laughs> what I think is 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 amazing is that you're you spend all this time as a POW, yeah. and then when you get liberated, you literally have a front row to see the battle. Yeah, that yeah. is that that is yeah. liberating you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a lot of other camps where the guards just left one day and they were they had to fend for themselves. And then the Russians, the Americans came and they watched the liberators come in. Well, they broke into the camp like something from a John Wayne movie. Oh, yeah. And the picture of the can, the tank, the first tank that came in. Ryan, have you ever seen that picture with the the prisoners all over? Yes. Have you seen that? Yes. You couldn't tell I, there was a tank under there. And they were kissing yeah. the tank guys, and it, they, they said there's, there's never be another day like that for them. Nothing. I mean, it was every emotion in the world was happening that day. And the bridge that blew up. I can imagine. When they blew the bridge, there was an American tank going across that bridge. And when he saw what was going to happen, he put it in reverse, and he just barely got off that bridge when it blew. And another on my right down there was ban- uh, banisters of a bridge up above the treetops. A tank that went up on That's the bridge, the bridge and exploded, uh, vanished anyway, and he just backed off, didn't hurt him, and then he made it. Then mm-hmm. the tank came up to the front gate, and then that thing, thing settled down then. So that was the battle that uh, happened right before you guys were liberated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When the tank came up to the front gate, and uh, that was General Patton, his tank was going to come through the gate on that 7-8 POW. Mm-hmm. Did... Uh, what did the once once they came through the gate? Did all the German guards just scatter? They, they were gone. They were gone before he got there. Did you guys mob the tanks? No. I mean, oh, the other did mob them. They went up there. We're, we're glad to see them, sir. <laughs> did, did, did General Patton say any words to you guys? Did he have any little prepared he, words? Or? No, he just got out and looked around a minute and left, as far as I can tell. I don't know <laughs> whether he said anything. I wasn't that close. Mm-hmm. But uh, he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So, so Marilyn's shaking her head vigorously <laughs> here. She's she's disagreeing. She's dissenting with Harold. So, Marilyn, tell us tell us what you know. Patton didn't come in until the third day, and he came in in the jeep. And there's pictures of it. And if you go, you can find those critical past videos. You can actually see him in the camp. He came in, um, and he took a look around. He set up in one of the barracks war crimes. You come in. You know, if you've got war crimes. So he said, uh, um, he set up, there's a picture, it says war crimes. And I know my dad went in and he filed a report about his, his one guy, his uh, crew member that died. And um, he did, wasn't there a long time, but he did speak to the men. He talked to them. A lot of accounts will say the same thing Harold did. He came in and he popped out of the tank and it didn't happen that way. <laughs> it's a nice thought, but it didn't happen that way. And um, he, a lot of the accounts said, yeah, we came in, we saw him, and he had his pearl-handled pistols. Well, they were ivory, and Patton never liked them to be curl- pearl. Every account I see is pearl. Um, he talked to the men. He said uh, he was going to go after the guys that did this to them, and they said, you point out the guards that treated you badly here, we'll take care of them. And then he said he had to move on to the next battle. So, uh, yeah, but they did, they were thrilled to see him, though. They all were, um, and it was a very moving moment when he came into the camp on his jeep. <laughs> so once he left, were you guys 
just free to go on your own at that point, or did the they guard, bring... The guards were all gone when he left. There wasn't any guards. So what did you do at that point? Did you guys all get well, in groups and... We had our, you know, we had our own group. We took care of ourselves in those camps. And we had our own formation, and we stayed there then until they took us out. So you guys just had to wait until supplies came and yeah. medical supplies and, and I, I personnel. Went out, I went out with some Russians. See, they had a whole lot of Russians there, and they did all kinds of stuff. And I went out scrounging with uh, one group of Russians, and they got a big old sow, beat her down, rolled, dragged her through a fire, and started eating. I couldn't eat it that way, but uh, so I left them. They, one of them excused me of being too good to eat with them, but I couldn't eat raw pork myself. <laughs> yeah. But hey, they, they had it rough. They were pretty decent, a bunch of people, really. I'd, I'd heard that when there were Russian prisoners in the camps, the Germans kind of treat them more harshly. Did yeah. you see that? Yeah, they did. For, for, that the, then the Russians got even with them. Yeah. <laughs> it worked both ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they tried to be real mean to the Russians. And they didn't have nothing to lose. <laughs> so, yeah. They, there's no, no soft feelings there at all. So, I mean, obviously, you know, which we learned today, one of the reasons why the Russians were mistreated, you know, more was because they weren't members of the Geneva Convention. Well, and, and there, are, there are some ideological hatred, too. Yeah. I think the from what I've read, the Russians were seen as more of a uh, enemy against humanity, humanity, whereas the Americans and the British were felt like they were more like brethren. Basically, there was some racism going on there, as far as I could tell, in terms of when the Russians were brought into camps. Uh, a statistic I just heard, Marilyn, and that I'd like to hear your comments from the book and your own research about what happened when the Russians were released from these prison camps, is there was about 3.3 million Russians taken prisoner by the Germans, and about 50% of them never came home. Now, the number's even worse for the German POWs in Russia. Mm -hmm. Very few of them came back. Both of them slaughtered so many right. of the POWs that they captured. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd, I'd like to hear your comments about what, what happened when the land was open to all of these former enemies of Germany. Well, you know, uh, we there was another um, Stalagluf one where a lot of our famous fighter pilots were. The Russians liberated that and they would not let any prisoners go because the Russian prisoners didn't want to go home. And they had to negotiate with Eisenhower at the time and said, we're not letting, they said, no Americans are getting out of this camp. So we're assured that we're getting all our Russian POWs to take back with us. So it was really hard on the prisoners. They knew what was going to happen to them. Um, and um, they just, like I said, they just went berserk when they finally got released. They'd been treated badly for so long. And they stole and they broke into homes and it was just horrible. Uh, but that, I would say, yeah, that's probably true. They marched the German prisoners who were through Moscow. I've seen pictures of it. And they treated them very badly, as you can imagine. Stalin and um, Molotov um, had sons who were prisoners of war. 
And they offered at one point Stalin to get his son back. And he said, no, leave him there. He's a prisoner. Just leave him there. And he was finally, from what I understand, there's two different accounts. He was scaling over the barbed wire to get away, knowing that they'd shoot him in the back and kill him, which they did. Um, so they, they were pretty heartless when it came to their own family, who, was PO, who were POWs, let alone the others. So um, once it settled down within a week or so, well, when they first came in, the Red Cross came into the camp and they, they had donuts. They brought donuts and real coffee in. And that was a big hit. And they put up loudspeakers around the camp. And two of the popular songs of that day were Don't Fence Me In and At Last. And they made sure that over and over. <laughs> but then the guys got so sick of it because they got the camp lucky strike. They did the same thing there everywhere they went. They heard these songs over and over and over again. But it was, yeah, they they all thought that those guys would probably thought you know oh this will be funny for the POWs yeah. but they're sick of they were, and they, yeah the yeah it's it's like a solid blue three once they had record players and they would get records from home or from the Red Cross and all these records came in one day a box but it was all the same songs so they <laughs> oh, I forget I somewhere I have it written down what it was and they they were trading records back and forth and they opened the boxes oh my gosh we've all got the same song <laughs> and planning on this part. Yeah. So so Harold has written here that uh, when they were freed at Mooseburg, um, the official estimate is that there were 110,000 prisoners liberated and 30,000 of those were Americans. I think uh, 30,000 seems high to me for Americans. No, I think he's got that wrong. But uh, the statistic I know is 120,000 men were of all different uh, countries, all the allies. um, They were kept. Uh, there together in a camp that was originally maybe for two or 3,000 men earlier in the war, and they had 120,000. So you can imagine what it was like. With only one, a uh, couple of pumps for water, overflowing latrines, it was one filthy, muddy mess, and they were so glad to get out of there and go home. And most of them went to, now a lot of them the first day, too, they were told not to leave the camp, but the more adventurous ones got out anyway, and they would liberate, as they called it, anybody's bike, car, horse, cart, whatever they could. And they'd take off. A camera factory had been, the Germans had, uh, Americans broke into a, a German camera factory. And some guy was giving out cameras, so they were taking pictures. A lot of them got to Paris and they never came home. <laughs> and they were back to the camp. Yeah, some came back to the camp to go to Camp Lucky Strike uh, up at La Harva, uh, where the ships Took them home, but not all of them arrived there. Some of them just had some fun for a while before they went home. <laughs> so good segue. Uh, this is our last clip. You'll be happy to know oh, we've kept fun. you now for for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is talking about his route after being liberated and Operation Magic Carpet, which okay. is the effort um, all that 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 the Allies took to get all these men mm-hmm. uh, out of their camps to Camp Lucky Strike and ultimately back well, to the U.S. I had an airbase, a uh, German airbase, oh, a few miles over, and they'd fly the planes in and fly us out. But uh, we had to lay over a few days before that. And then uh, I think we had to lay over eight days, I believe, before they could fly us out. They flew us down to Lucky Strike. So you were healthy enough to to uh, to travel back to the U.S. at that point and everything? Yeah, well, at Lucky Strike, when I got down there, I stayed there. They, they couldn't feed all, everything you had, really. They were hard up for feeding the, the group. And 
I think I laid over about three or four days there at Lucky Strike. I went, they went down, they went into France. We had, they gave, gave us a little money. And we went into Belgium before I went to Lucky Strike. And uh, I went out and bought me a pint of ice cream. <laughs> so that was your first yeah. taste of luxurious food since you were shot down yeah, huh? in Belgium. Belgium wasn't as hard up as the rest of them. So we had, we, they treated us good, the Belgians did. And uh, like I said, uh, I bought a pint of ice cream. Boy, that was wonderful. And then I went from there down to Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike. Couldn't hardly handle us. They had so many. So uh, we've heard that story before. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many guys coming into Lucky Strike that mm-hmm. you know it was just overrun with with with, with GIs and and guys trying to get mm-hmm. fattened back up and everything. So, yeah. um, I, and I think at this point um, he described you know from from here after he got um, cleaned up and everything. He didn't mention how long he actually stayed at Lucky Strike, but then he boarded a ship and headed back to the U.S. and, and ended up in Boston. And yeah, so. well, my my dad, uh, my older sister was born while he was gone, and he didn't know. She was already six months old when he got home. He didn't know if he had a son or daughter, which is kind of interesting. And his co-pilot, the same thing. Well, he was able to tell his co-pilot, the Stalinger 3, because my mother and the co-pilot's mother were friends. And she had had a baby girl before my mother had my sister, and she got her letter got through. So my dad uh, went through and um, actually got to tell the co-pilot that he had a daughter, but my dad didn't know. No mail was getting through then. Um, he went to Camp Lucky Strike. Uh, there were long lines to eat, long lines. The rest of his life, he never liked to stand in a line. He was in so many long lines. And uh, he was there. I think they, they kept them... Oh, a week or two with them, about two weeks. And by then they were really wanting to come home. They got paid, they got new uniforms, they got that kind of thing. If they had German souvenirs, they were only allowed to bring so many swords back or so many Lugers back. He, I know he brought a Luger home. Um, and uh, they got squared away and got on a ship. But at that time, the troop ships came across. They still had to be in convoys because... The um, U-boats were still out there, some of them, and they didn't know if they got word the war had ended or not, or as revenge, if they would shoot up the ships. Plus, the water was really rough, and there was a lot of fog. And so uh, they were. it was very risky coming back. They still had to zigzag because of the U-boats, so it took them longer to get home. He came into Boston. Most of them came into New York. But, yeah, but the prisoners of war that hadn't eaten much, they put them on... Um, like eggnog at Camp Lucky Strike to ease them back because their stomachs could not take food. It would have killed them if they ate a lot of meals. And some of them ate a lot of those donuts and threw those up and, you know, and that was calling 7A. So they had to be more careful with them. Um, and here, that, I mentioned he was having eggnog too for a while. <laughs> so, so Marilyn, uh, so much of this story centers around Stalag Luft three. Uh, were there any cemeteries um, or a cemetery for the camp or any of the POWs that passed away? And and if so, were all of those guys repatriated? After yes, the they were. Um, they had a cemetery. I've been to the cemetery in Moosburg. Um, most of Moosburg's gone. The barracks are down. It became low-income housing after the war, but the cemetery is still there. Most of the prisoners there were Russians. All the Americans were brought home after the war, and also Stalag Luft three had a cemetery. Um, Lieutenant Scoggins, unfortunately, was not buried in there. He was taken out of the camp, and that's why he was hard to so find. So could you but. give us a, a synopsis of the Scoggins story? It's a 
very touching and, oh, and amazing story. story. Yeah, it's my favorite. Um, I went out to the Air Force Academy to research Rhapsody and Junk book, that book. And I talked to General Clark for quite a long time. And it was just when I was leaving one day, he said, by the way, do you ever know what, do you know what happened to Lieutenant Spiners? And I, I hadn't heard the name and I have, it looks like a yearbook uh, called Clipped Wings of the History of South Compound. And there's a cross in there with his name on it and three others who died in the camp, but they were buried in the camp. Um, and so um, I said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And it took me 12 years to find out. But I was determined to find him. Unfortunately, by the time I did, General Clark had died at the age of 96. But I know his daughter. Um, and so she became part of it. And I was able to find um, the people that buried him. And we have the old burial pictures. So we know exactly where he was buried in a place called Lubin, Poland, about an hour outside the camp. And next to the grave, as they're lowering it down, the Germans would provide wreaths and a, a painted, it was a painted American flag, and they went to the funeral, and some townspeople went to the funeral for Lieutenant Steiners. He had slipped on the ice, and he, a, a, a wood splinter went in his ear and caused an infection. That's what killed him. We, we figured that out. He had uh, a brain, and unfortunately, when the infection went to his brain, it caused uh, behavior that he was just unmanageable. He screamed and yells and they couldn't control him. So the Germans um, took him out. Well, they said he died the next day, which he did or else. I, mean, I think he actually died in the camp and they took him out. But I, he was in the cooler. And uh, Jerry Sage that you mentioned was next to him, we're pretty sure, and heard him banging his head on the wall. And one of the guards said he was dead the next morning. But so anyway, when we saw the burial pictures, there were, General Clark said, and then this is the prisoner war section of the, of the cemetery. And down here, you notice he said, see these white flags. These are all French prisoners. And I just kind of made note of it. And I saw the little, he said, the flimsy crosses, you know, and they had names on them, which disappeared, of course. Well, after the war, the Russians took over that part of Lubin, Poland, um, and that huge civilian cemetery there. Um, they wanted to do away with. They took all the crosses down, all the markers. And so if you're trying to find somebody that was there, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so we send, and there's a big, huge memorial rock there that says Skyners on it. So we know he was buried. There was no question. And uh, we even knew what grave he was in. And we sent archaeologists over. They, the, pole, the poles dug there once, I think, couldn't find him. American archaeologists went over. They couldn't find him. And one more time, we sent the same archaeologist and, um, to find him, look one last time in that cemetery. And while he was digging, and we were emailing from here to Poland, um, I had, um, and they emailed me and they said, you told us once about a big iron gate in the cemetery. Could you describe it? Steve, I never could find a picture of it. I wasn't sure where it was. And um, I... He said, can you uh, see if you can look one more time because we can orient ourselves because we know they went through that gate. And I was going to look for that. Um, and I have to say something here because I'm Catholic. We play, pray rosaries all the time. And the night before, um, I prayed a rosary. I said, this is our last chance. If we don't find him now, we never will. Well, he asked me about the gate. And here... When I put the same search terms in that I've always put in, cemeteries, conyers, all these terms, something came up I'd never seen before. And it gives me chills to this day because there was 
a big white cross that said Spaniards on it. And not only that, next to it, there was a big bright green Google map of a cemetery and it had a red arrow pointing at his grave. It's like God said, look, you've been looking for him 12 years. I'm finally going to have to tell you where it is. He's here. It's right here. He's here. That's right. Here you go. And Let me help it, you out. It was the French military cemetery in Poland. And we thought, well, how did he get up there? Well, we did all this investigating. We finally figured out what happened. And again, I had to help. It wasn't just, I mean, I found him that day, but we had good researchers working with us, DPAA. He was working with us in the government. Um, and I, I, when I saw it, I emailed to the people on the ground, the archaeologists. They said, stop digging. <laughs> He's not there. <laughs> and I sent it to them. And they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. And the reason it had never come up before, and we could figure this out, you know, if there's a, a find a grave is a website if you want to find where somebody's grave is. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And, and people volunteer and they'll go all over the world taking pictures of every grave and every cemetery and they post it there. Well, this Polish man was up near the cemetery, uh, another civilian cemetery, and he finished that one. And he was he saw another guy talking to asking what he was doing. He said, well, you might want to go. There's a French military cemetery right up here. You might want to get a picture of those graves. So he did. And it was only a week or two before this. And it hadn't been posted until recently. And he took a picture of the Scania's grave. And so that's, it came up billiongraves.com. Um, and I had never seen that website before because that's who he was working for. And there it was, there was the picture. And it took another almost two and a half, three years to get him home. All the embassies got involved, the Polish embassy, the French embassy, the American embassy. They had to prove it was him. They did over, I have, uh, they finally exhumed him and they, they, um, they did verify it was him in Poland, and then he came over here, and, of course, we took over, and we, it was verified that he, DNA testing that it was him. And it was the most incredible story. So we took him to Florida, and we found, like I said, I was looking, I found the children of every um, man who buried him that day the, in the burial contingent, and they stood where their father stood at, this, at his grave. Oh, we reenacted wow. it, and General Clark's daughter was one of them. And um, and so they buried him in Florida next to his mother, who never really knew what happened to him. And after 73 years, he came home. So they made the documentary. And on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, our film beat out 50 other films on the 75th. And the Band of Brothers guys were there, presented the award uh, for being brothers. Uh, My goodness. It, it was an incredible story. Uh, it really, it was just life-changing for all of us who were connected with it. And we couldn't find any members of his family at first. And then come to find out that now his his niece, he actually had a couple nieces, but they never came up in the documentation. The family was all dead from what we could see. And she lives five minutes from me, now his daughter. And then, see, oh you know, uh, so, so, so real quick, Marilyn. Yeah. First off, that's amazing. Yeah, it was a great. Ryan and I, Ryan and I have had things like that happen to us associated with this project. Oh, no. And I have a theory. Yeah. So I, I think I was raised Catholic as well. Yeah. I don't do the rosary though. <laughs> so I think that that there are cosmic forces at play. I don't think it's a, co a coincidence. No. I think there's a, I think there's a hierarchy. I I think that God doesn't really care if He can't find. Uh, a nail polish of a certain color, 
You may luck into it. You may think it's a minor miracle, but I don't think he gives a crap about that. But or I, that parking spot you got. Exactly, right? <laughs> but I think that when yeah. when I think that when God sees people working on certain things mm-hmm. that are not superficial, that have some depth, that can impact other people, mm-hmm. I totally think he interacts oh, with Oh, absolutely. There's no question. There's no coincidences. I'm convinced there are none. Yeah. There isn't. And yeah. I'll, I'll share one very quick one with you. There was a veteran that we interviewed who had gotten blown out of his bomber by an overflight of bombers that dropped their bombs through his bomber. He was the bombardier. He got flung out and picked up off the coast of the Philippines and rescued. Mm-hmm. Ryan and I, for the the the, um, um, the uh, autograph tent in Houston, were putting together a storyboard for him. So when people came in, they could get an idea of what he did. And then he could sign autographs from some photos that we had of him. Uh-huh. This guy's name is Pete Conduras. I was doing some research on his bomb group. I type in, you know, bomb group, whatever it was, and it goes to their bomb group homepage. You've seen these. And you know how they can have like a forum with a bunch of listed yeah. different topics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just clicked on the forum and about three or four down, there was something and it said, hi, my name is dot, dot, dot. And I don't know why, but I was drawn to that. And I clicked on that post and it was a girl named Karen who had grandfather who was on a B-24 that was blown up over the Philippines. And she heard that there was a sole survivor and she wanted to know if someone could point her to that one individual so she could learn more about her grandfather, who I think was a co-pilot. Yeah. I couldn't believe I it. I was able to connect her with Pete Conduras when I just was doing research. Why would I click on that mm-hmm. link? It's no coincidence. God, God's putting, <laughs> he's putting, it's not. He's putting people in places yes. to, to link yes. up. And, and I mean, it's, it's yeah. beautiful. We've got several of those. Intersects with another life unexpectedly. Those things happen. Yeah. yeah. It's like chess pieces on a board. We're all being moved around. <laughs> Yeah, Marilyn. Uh, I mean, this wraps up um, the the seri- the podcast here, and we sincerely appreciate. Oh, it's fun. <laughs> uh, you taking the time today. First of yeah. all, we've kept you through your lunch, so you're probably starving right yeah. now. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, you had mentioned so your book Rhapsody and Junk. Mm-hmm. So, so if people wanted to buy your book, Marilyn, I mean, there's always Amazon, but could they also order them directly from you? Yeah, if they want an autographed book from me mine are usually cheaper than amazon's and the postage and all mine they would just send me a check for about 23 dollars, and that includes the postage uh amazon wants 24.95 plus another six seven eight dollars postage so uh and i can autograph it if they'd like i'd be glad to do that i have i have about 50 of them here right now because of covid i had something that happened that got canceled because of covid and i had the books so they're all here and um, I, should I just give you my email address or my? Um, yeah, whatever you're email? comfortable sharing. If you're comfortable sharing uh, yeah, the email with everyone, um, then let's have it. That's Walton, W A L T O N, letter K, number nine, K9 for my K9 books, uh, at gmail.com. And I, I have K9 books too, by the way. <laughs> same, same event got canceled. Um, so, um, they can just send me a check made out to me and tell me who they want an autograph to and make sure that they have their own name and address where I can mail it to them. And within probably a week and a half, um, 10 somebody else when um, I can mail it to them. And uh, that'd be great. Yeah. Be now, great. the other books you've written, do you have those in stock also? Do you have some there at your house that you would be able to fulfill orders for? I don't have those in stock. Those are on Amazon and um 
we've never ordered a whole lot of those. That, uh, I don't even get all the sales. My my co-author uh, keeps track of it more, and he just gets the money and he sends it over to the museum in, in Poland. Uh, when that happens, we do uh, the von Lindiner books really interesting, and I don't have copies of that here, uh, but that can be on it's on Amazon as well. Um, I have one more quick story if you have time for one. That's funny one I want to tell you. A parting story here, because this, again, this is from Kingsley Brown, who was a, a journalist, a Canadian journalist that became a POW, and he, he wrote his stories greatly. And he went into the camp and he thought he was going to really fight from inside the wire and give him whatever he had to do. And he was going to be, you know, like a Superman cape on. He was going to do these wonderful things to help um, the Allies. And so they said, OK, we're going to send you over here to this um, other British. He was a higher ranking officer. And uh, go in and talk to him, and he's got a project for you. So that would really be a big help. So he went over there, and he met him, and he said, the guy was sitting at a desk, and he had all these jars lined up. And, and Kingsley could hear the buzzing noise. He heard buzzing noise. And he's got bees. He's got a lot of bees in these jars. And the project was that you had to stun the bee and take him out. And he was, had made these little pennants, and he would tie them to the bees. And they said, Hitler kaput and Deutschland kaput. And they would release the, fly, the, the, the bees and they'd fly around all that. And then the Germans caught on to what they were doing. And they didn't like it because the local Germans were having these bees die in their yard. And they take the pen and says, Hitler kaput on it. You know? <laughs> 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 so he said, <laughs> he said, and that was the project. <laughs> and we were the bees. And so he said, uh, then he said later, I found out later, I heard from the British man's wife that was doing the bee project. And she had never heard the story before. Well, it turns out after the war, um, he had been in some very, he was uh, naval. He had been in some fancy, you know, going near the Bismarck and trying to sink the Bismarck and all that. And he worked for six uh, British prime ministers at 10 Downing Street after the war in security. And uh, he was very well known, very accomplished man. And we don't know if he was just pulling their leg doing this, just having some fun, or if he took it seriously. But uh, And he didn't marry till he was over 50, and he married a girl that was 20 that was the secretary at Downing Street. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just made this up, you know. So. <laughs> no. I'll tell you what, you get a bunch. <laughs> you, get, you get a bunch of, of young men yes. who are extremely bored. Yes. And you're going to get a lot of chicanery. You're going to have people digging tunnels to try to get out of That's there. Right. <laughs> if you couldn't do tunnels, at least you could do bees. <laughs> exactly. <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Marilyn, um, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, we welcome. can't thank you enough. We yeah. owe you big time. Um, and, you know, anybody out there listening, if you want to uh, learn anything more, uh, you know, pick up her book, Rhapsody and Junk. It is just a fantastic yeah. read. Her writing style is beautiful. And she and it's research to the hill. There's so much rich information in there. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, I guess with that, we're going to sign off here. Um, I am Ryan Fairfield. I'm Tony Philip Lupo. Marilyn Walton. And all yeah. right, this is the Warrior Next Door podcast. Thanks for sticking with us today. If you'd like to order Marilyn's book, Rhapsody and Junk, A Daughter's Return to Germany to Finish Her Father's Story, 
please take advantage of this special offering for our listeners only. For $23, which includes shipping and handling, you'll get an autographed copy of her book directly from Marilyn Walton. To place your order, please email waltonk9 at gmail.com. That's W-A-L-T-O-N, the letter K, the number nine, at gmail.com. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. All right, a little bit of bonus material here for the listeners. Uh, What we've got is part two of the David Baldner comments, who is a listener. Uh, that has submitted some comments to us and questions before and relaying some stories. And this is the second half of some of the stuff that he has relayed to Tony and I via our Facebook page. David's not done. Again, David being a longtime listener, and we appreciate it, David. He also listened to our Bill Parker series where they talked about the invasion on Omaha Beach. And Ryan and I and Bill talked about how important of a role the U.S. Navy played in allowing Omaha Beach to be um, to be invaded, to be occupied, to create a beachhead there, so it wasn't a failure. And please listen to that episode if you if you haven't already. Uh, but something that he shared with us, we mentioned in the podcast, Ryan. Do you remember talking about the USS Texas? Of course. So what what did you comment about the USS Texas? What do you know about it? Well, having lived in Houston. Um, I was able to tour the Texas, as you have, several times. And uh, one of the things that was really great about that was taking a hard hat tour of the USS Texas while I was there. And we, we got to go into the front turret. We went from the powder magazine all the way up to the, to the front turret where they brought the shells and the powder up. And being able to be at the point where those shells were fired from. And then in Normandy, being able to stand in those same shell craters on Point de Hoc where those shells landed was really kind of an interesting, uh, you know, experience to have. I hope that's what you were talking about. That's exactly it. And it okay. is the last remaining what? Dreadnought. Yes. Is that, I mean, come on, the Dreadnought class. You know, um, and sometimes so I World, War World War One battleship. You know? Yes, uh, the, 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 it was a new class of battleship, all big gun, called the Dreadnought. It was initially a British invention, um, and the British are the best people in the world at naming things, which is freaking fantastic. <laughs> and I'm, come on, the British named a ship the Indefatigable. <laughs> Indefatigable, right? I mean, the British are awesome. For all of our British, British listeners, you know, thank, thank, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> that you're in this world to name shit for us because the stuff that we would name it would be like a uh, big gun battleship. Yeah. Or no, you after it our trade-off. Yes. Right. So at any rate, what, um, what David called, wrote into Facebook to tell us was that the Texas was part of the D-Day invasion, but more importantly, it talked a bit about a little bit of a U.S. Um, ingenuity to make sure that it could, it could be serviceable during that time. So I got this from a link he shared with us called wearethemighty.com, and it reads thus. As Allied forces pushed off the beach, Texas moved closer to shore to support them. Originally stationed 12,000 yards offshore, we mentioned in our podcast about the ramifications of having the Navy that far away. Please listen to it. 
but I will continue. And it continues. <laughs> Originally stationed 12,000 yards offshore, she moved to just 3,000 yards from the beach on June 7th and 8th, the day after the two days after D-Day, when we were still landing troops and are still contested. She continued to bombard German positions. Um, she was forced to return to England to rearm and was on station off France again by June 11th. And by June 15th, a full week after D-Day, the Allied forces had pushed so far inland, thank God, uh, that their targets were now out of Texas's range. So in order to fulfill the request for fire missions, the Texas's crew got, had to get creative. And so the ship's massive 14-inch guns didn't have the elevation required to lob their shots as far inland as the invasion forces needed. So if the guns are facing port, and for those that are wondering what port is, looking forward, it's the left side of the ship. So if the guns facing port couldn't be raised any further, then the starboard side of the ship need to be lowered. The starboard torpedo blister, which is basically a big empty space below the waterline to prevent a torpedo from detonating against the hull, they flooded that. And what it did is it gave a two degree list to starboard, which allowed her 14 inch guns to have that much more elevation to continue a couple of weeks past D-Day to drop large 14 inch naval shells onto positions to support uh, the United States invasion. And it finishes up by writing, by reading, they say that necessity is the mother of invention and combat has proved this time and time again. Next time someone pitches you a solution that sounds crazy, remember that it might just be crazy enough to work. So I wonder, like, with what, what did that, you know, based upon what the range is of the ship without having to do that, how much more mileage do they get? How much more range do they get by just lifting it up an extra two degrees? I'm not sure. And, you know, David, if you're listening to this, uh, if you could follow up on that, that would be freaking fantastic. <laughs> I, I do not. Uh, David also writes, by the way, that um, he grew up about six miles from the San Jacinto Monument in East Houston and toured um, the USS Texas as, as a kid quite a bit. So it sounds like it's a ship he's really familiar with. I didn't know that little piece of D-Day trivia. Uh, Brian, cool. have you heard about that before? No, I've never heard it like that. I mean, it makes sense, you know, and everything. But I was thinking whenever he mentioned this, I thought he was just talking about getting uh, that they were so close that they had to lob them more up in the air to get them to come straight down. You know, but that makes more sense that they're trying to get more range to hit the front lines further inland. So that's pretty cool. I did not know that. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. Um, so we do appreciate our listeners we do appreciate those who share these interesting stories with us. Uh, please go to our Facebook site. Uh, and anytime that you have some sort of correction, something that we screwed up, share it with us. If there's something that you want to add to give us a little bit more depth to some of the things that we share, share that with us too. 